friend Daryl Bruscott. If you've been around West Michigan, you may know him too. Uh, Daryl and his beloved Sandy, they're called Downtown Dwellers. They live above a retail shop on 8th Street, Downtown Holland. They love downtown. They live downtown. They make downtown a better place. Sandy's the one who makes homemade birthday cards and sends them to as many Pillarites as she can. Daryl is a creative, a businessman, entrepreneur, artist with an eclectic love of all kinds of music. There is never a dull moment with Daryl. He's never met a stranger. He can talk to anyone, anywhere, at any time. Most recently, he's gotten into uh, making art out of copper and slate. It's actually very cool. 15, 20 years ago, he was in a really bad accident at work. He fell off a ladder and broke more bones in his body than most of us realize we have. In God's tender mercy and the really good work of doctors and nurses through all kinds of surgeries, he actually recovered and was doing pretty well. And then just a couple of months ago, he started coming down with the symptoms we all know too well. Some headaches, runny nose, sore throat, fever. He was taken to the hospital. The hospital was slammed. They didn't have a room for him. He spent quite a bit of time one afternoon in the hallway of the hospital before he was sent over to Grand Rapids where they immediately put him on a ventilator, heavily sedated for what turned out to be weeks, even into the months. We all have been praying for him. Doctors and nurses have continued to care for him. And slowly, very slowly, He's been on the road to recovery. So much so that in the last week or two, he and I have been able to text a little bit together. He texts single words like hi, or maybe even sarcastically fun, and then I text him prayers on our behalf. Earlier this week on Tuesday, we actually had the opportunity to FaceTime together. It was such a delight to see his face, uh, gown and tubes and wires, but still vibrant, alive in his eyes. In our FaceTime conversation, he said something to me that I thought was particularly fitted for our conversation. Uh, If there's time, I'll share with you what he said. But for now, I want you to walk with me on the way with John. John's Gospel, it's chapter 4, verses 46 through chapter 5, verse 18. You can grab your Bible and a smartphone in just a few minutes. For now, listen. Just listen. Listen carefully and listen well. Then Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. Now there was a royal official whose son was ill in Capernaum. When the man learned that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged him to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And Jesus said, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The man said, Sir, come down before my little boy dies. Jesus said, Go. Your son will live. And the man believed the words Jesus spoke to him, and he started out. He was going down, and his slaves met him and told him that his child was alive. And the man asked them, 
when he had recovered, and they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him, and the father realized that was the hour Jesus said to him, your son will live. So he himself believed and his entire household. This was the second sign Jesus did after coming from Judea to Galilee. Now there was a festival of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there is a pool, called in Hebrew, Betzada, which has five porticos. In these lay many invalids, lame, blind, and paralyzed. There was a man there who had been ill 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there, he knew he'd been there for a long time, and he said to him, Do you want to be made well? And the man said, Sir, I have no one to carry me down into the pool when the waters are stirred. And as I'm making my way, someone steps down in ahead of me. And Jesus said, Stand up, take your mat, and walk. And immediately the man was made well. And he stood up and he walked. Now, the day was a Sabbath. And when the Jews saw the man carrying his mat, they said to him, It is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your mat. And he answered them, The man who healed me said, Stand up and take your mat. And they said to him, Who was it that said to you, Stand up and take it? But he didn't know that it was Jesus, for he had disappeared into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus saw him at the temple and said, See, you've been made well. Do not sin again, so that nothing worse happens to you. Then the man went to the Jews and told them it was Jesus who had healed him. So the Jews started persecuting Jesus because he was doing such things on the Sabbath. But Jesus said, my father is still working, so I also am working. For this reason, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but also because he referred to God as his own father, thereby making himself equal to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's John 4, 46 through chapter 5, verse 18. Two healing stories that draw our attention to one fundamental claim of the Christian story. And then a Sabbath argument that points us in the direction the world, to the promise the world longs to experience. Two healing stories and a Sabbath argument sounds like a day in the life for Jesus. The first healing story, the royal official's son. The second healing story, the sick man near the pool of Bethsaida. Each story drawing our attention to the fundamental claim of the Christian story, the necessity on each person to believe, to trust. We call it faith. When Luther launched the revolution, we call the Reformation. One of the five convictions was called sola fide, faith alone, borrowing from the Apostle Paul who said, it is by grace you've been saved through faith. Faith is the doorway through which the Spirit draws us and grace works us into the eternal realities of God. It's Peter who preached at Pentecost, everyone who believes on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Faith is the doorway, though the breadth of Christian interest knows no bounds, and the duration of Christian conviction keeps pressing on our lives, calling for more and more of ourselves. 
They're both launched in faith. Faith, trust, belief. The royal official comes to Jesus. He's heard that he's come up from Judea to Galilee. He's desperate. He begs him to heal his son. And Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the man, just desperate, says, Sir, come down before my little boy dies. And you can imagine the broken heart of the father. And Jesus says, Go, your son will live. And then, verse 50, the man believed the words that Jesus spoke to him. And then John accentuates the point later, saying in verse 53, So he himself believed and his entire household, faith, trust, belief. And then the second story, the second healing story, the the sick man at the pool of Bethesda, it's called, laying there for 38 years. The Bible pays very careful attention to numbers. I have no idea what 38 means, except he's been there a very long time. And Jesus says, do you even want to be made well? And the man's desperate. Again, the man begs, sir, I have no one to carry me into the pool. And when I'm making my way, someone steps down in ahead of me. There's no word for faith in the second story, but the action of the man's life is the consequence of faith. He stands up and he walks. Faith, trust, belief. The Heidelberg Catechism, you know it, you love it, I'm sure like I do. Question and answer 21. What is true faith? It is not only a certain knowledge by which I accept as true all that God has revealed in his word. It's also a wholehearted trust that the Spirit creates in me through the gospel that not only for others but for me also God has granted the forgiveness of sins eternal life and salvation solely through Christ's saving merit faith trust belief it's the doorway through which the spirit leads us and grace works us into the eternal purposes of God so maybe maybe you've spent a lifetime in church and it's the things of the christian faith have just become obligatory practices, I want to invite you to believe. I want to call you to faith. Or maybe maybe you're online because you don't do church. You don't want to go to church. I want to call you to faith, to believe the doorway through which the Spirit draws us and grace works us into the eternal realities of God. I was in a conversation with one of my daughters Earlier this week, I've been banned from telling stories about them, so I figure if I don't share their name and they remain anonymous, it's okay. We'll see how this goes. She's been asking me the complex questions of life and faith. She's trying to figure out, how is it that the Christian story can be true over against all of the other world religions that also claim truth to their story, that also have creation stories and sin stories and redemption stories? How can this one be true? So, being theologically educated, I do what any good dad would do. I send her to her mom. Just kidding. So, Tuesday night, she's pressing on me with all of these really complex questions. And we we find ourselves having this conversation saying things like, you can't prove faith, but that doesn't make faith unreasonable. There's all kinds of very good evidence and the testimony of those who saw Jesus, heard Jesus, witnessed the crucified Christ alive again in resurrection. Wouldn't you think one of them would have renounced their own belief in Christ if it weren't true before they were put to death? So we're having this conversation. I'm feeling pretty good about my Tuesday night apologetics. And we agree together. You can't prove faith doesn't make it unreasonable. You can't prove it. At a certain point, 
you got to believe. Faith, trust, the, the royal official begs him, begs him to come down and heal his son. The man, the sick man at the pool of Bethesda begs him, sir, I have no one to carry me in the water. Isn't it interesting? The disposition of faith, I'm not sure what a faithful life looks like in your mind, the disposition of faith is desperation. It's not a sort of air of superiority. You're in on a secret no one else knows. It's not a stoic confidence. Actually, it's desperation, which poses a problem for us, at least in the West, at least in this country, at least for a lot of us here. We're really not desperate. We have people we can talk to. We have places we can go. We have things we can turn to. Desperation. I've been reading a book a pastor friend of mine wrote, titled Rooted. It's not yet published. It's coming out soon. You can find it when it does. In the book, my pastor friend quotes John Calvin. Although God, by his benefits, gently allures us to himself, as it were by a taste of his fatherly sweetness, yet there's nothing into which we more easily fall than into a forgetfulness of him when we're in the enjoyment of peace and comfort. There's nothing into which we more easily fall than into forgetfulness when we're in the enjoyment of peace and comfort. My friend goes on to say, blessing should lead to gratitude, but instead it often leads to forgetfulness. You can't conjure up desperation. It will find each of us eventually, but you also don't have to forget just how desperately we need the saving purposes, the healing purposes, the redeeming purposes of Jesus Christ in the world. Faith poses a second challenge to us, though. Too often and too quickly, we mislocate faith on the consequences of the one who heals rather than the one who heals. We, we, we think of faith as, as a sort of everything must work out for me kind of proposition, a transaction. We mislocate faith into its consequence, its evidence, rather than the one who does the healing, saving, and redeeming. I was watching America's Funniest Videos when I was a little kid. Uh, we'd come home from night church. We always went to church twice on Sundays. Despite the fact that I got the flu every Sunday afternoon, we always had to go to night church. And then one of my favorite memories as a child, coming home from night church, we'd swing through Little Caesars, we'd get the pizza, the Diet Coke, and we'd come home and watch America's Funniest Videos. For some reason, I think our TV was left on this past weekend, and America's Funniest Videos is on. And there's this clip of a little boy uh, I'll, I'll let you watch it. What are you doing? Trying to go up. <laughs> what? I'm trying to go up. You're trying to grow up? <laughs> How's it working? I can't. <laughs> that was just for fun. I hope you found it fun but also a little bit of an image of what we do with faith. We think faith is a magic formula to get us something, a, a determined will to get bigger, to grow stronger. We mislocate faith onto its evidence, its consequence, rather than the one who does the healing. Faith invites us to believe Jesus is who he says he is and will do what he says he'll do. Faith. The, second, the first story, the, the, the healing of the royal official son, the story ends. This was the second sign. There are seven signs in John's gospel. The second 
is the healing of the royal official's son. The third is the healing of the sick man at the pool of Bethesda. They're signs. The other gospel writers refer to them as miracles. John speaks of them as signs pointing to who Jesus is. Faith, trust, believe. It's a doorway into the eternal purposes of God. The third sign, the healing of the sick man at the pool of Bethesda, launches a Sabbath argument. Sabbath was a big deal. God commanded the fourth command, thou shalt remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And when he offered that in Exodus 20, I think it is, he brought the people of God all the way back to creation when God made the whole world in six days and on the seventh day, God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. So he hallowed the seventh day and blessed it for on it God rested, Sabbath. Sabbath keeping is a disposition of trust in one who is still acting, still working, working until finally all things are made new and all things are made right. Sabbath keeping is an act of trust. When you're not working, God is. When you're not doing anything, God is still doing. When you're not up to it, God is still up to the redemption of the whole world. Sabbath. My Sabbath keeping practices for the last 20 years have found me on Fridays. The word Sabbath seems too pious to me, so I usually refer to it as my day off, or depending on who I'm talking to and wanting to create boundaries around the day, I'll say, well, it's a family day, which reduces what Sabbath actually is. It's not a day off. It's not just time to be with family. It's an opportunity to awaken our hearts to the God who works, to the God who acts, and is working until finally all things are made right, even when you're not, even when you can't, even if you don't. God is, God does, God will make all things new. John is clear to point out, now that day was a Sabbath. And when the Jews saw the man carrying his mat, They're like, hey, it's the Sabbath, that's unlawful. And the man said, hey, the guy who healed me told me to do it. And they're like, who is it that told you to to take it and walk? And he didn't know because Jesus had slipped into the crowds. And then Jesus sees him in the temple later and engages the man. And the man, can you believe this? The man then leaves Jesus and goes tells the Jews it was Jesus who healed him. He sold him out. Jesus has just said, don't sin again so that nothing worse happens to you. And he goes and sells him out. Who knows what happened to the man? And that launches this engagement around Sabbath. The Jews are upset that he's breaking their Sabbath rules. And Jesus says, and here's the point, my father is still working. Even though it's Sabbath, my father is still working. Even while you're not doing anything, my father is still working. So I also am working. Which upsets the Jews greatly because Jesus has just equated himself with God. The father is working. Jesus is working. Jesus is Sabbath. Jesus is the fulfillment of Sabbath. Jesus isn't breaking Sabbath rules. He's in breaking Sabbath into time. He's the one who's going to reconcile all things to himself. He's the one who's going to pick up the broken pieces of our lives and put them all back together again. He's the one who's going to heal and redeem. Jesus isn't breaking some religious obligation. He's inaugurating the purposes of God. In time, Jesus is Sabbath. Uh, Irenaeus, second century bishop, my friend Anna, got me onto this. Just as through the disobedience of one human person, the very first to be shaped out of untouched earth, 
the great mass of people became sinners and lost their hold on life, so also it was necessary that the mass of people be justified and receive salvation through the obedience of one human person, the first to be born of a virgin. The Logos of God, therefore, became a human being. God recapitulating in himself the age-old shaping of the human creature so that he might kill off sin, be rid of death, and give life to humanity. Life to humanity. Sabbath. Jesus is the one who says, come to me and I'll give you rest. Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it in abundance. He's the one. He's the one who turns water into wine and raises the dead. He's the one who heals the sick and exercises demons. He's the one who heals the royal official son and the sick man at the pool of Bethesda, breaking Sabbath into time. He's the one. So I'll return with you to the conversation I had with Daryl earlier this week. He's been a long couple of months, if you you can only imagine, uh, heavily sedated for weeks on end, a ventilator, tracheotomy. He's now got infections in his lungs and in his stomach and in his liver. The journey remains long, and I have his permission to share this with you, and part of the reason I am is because I want you to keep praying for Daryl and for Sandy and the hospital workers and the healthcare professionals who are in it with them We've been texting a little bit, and that turned into a FaceTime conversation on Tuesday. It was so good to see him, though he's thinned dramatically, the gown and the tubes and the wires, his eyes still vibrant, his eyes still alive, he's still cracking his jokes. As we were talking, you know, his voice is really weak. I'm asking questions like, well, what, what do you do all day? Do, do you read books? Do you watch TV? And he said to me, no, I turned the TV off weeks ago. Can't take it anymore, he said. Such bad news. And then he got kind of animated. He said, some are on the left side and some are on the right side. He said, pastor, I want to be on Jesus' side. He said it again, pastor, I want to be on Jesus' side. My father is still working, so I also am working Working, working, working until one day all things are made right in this crazy, complex, mixed up, messed up world. One day everything will be made new. All things reconciled back to God. The broken pieces of our lives put back together again and offered back as something beautiful for the whole world. I want to be on Jesus' side. He's the one. Amen? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And here at the table... We catch a glimpse. This is a pledge and foretaste of the feast of love of which we shall partake one day when we behold him, when we see him, when we're made like him. If you believe Jesus is Lord and you acknowledge him as Savior, you're welcome at this table in this way. Maybe you've got wine and bread or crackers and juice. If you're not at that place in life or faith, if you wouldn't consider yourself in on the Christian story or haven't really come to a place of faith in Christ, I'd love for the opportunity to have conversation with you, hear some of your questions. I can share some of my story. My email is john, J-O-N, at pillarchurch.com. For those who are coming, this is the body of Christ given for you and the blood of Christ shed for you.